Hello again, it's me, Humpty Gingold. I'm still here in lockdown in Karachi, in my boarding house with uh, my delightful landlady. You can hear her there in the background. Uh, I'm, I'm taking some time now to reflect on my life choices after an incident during a Zoom meeting. And uh, hopefully, by the time you listen to this podcast, my wife and children will be speaking to me again. This podcast was recorded at... I don't feel that you are a racist. I'm done with this. No, no, no. Sorry. No. And here's the show. Magic screen, come up with something. Perhaps some of you are wondering what I'm doing carrying around a stepladder. Well, let me assure you, I was hanging pictures and not people. You know, a truly charming person is a well-rounded person with wide interests. I'd like to assure you that it is not done by strange fellows with long hair who live in attics and wear berets. Paradise Lost At what a cost There's no escape In the things that I do I'll be haunted all my life through with smoke dreams, smoke dreams of you. Last time on music, four films. The Bat was based on a very successful thriller, The Circular Staircase, written by Mary Roberts Reinhardt. Uh, that then went on to become a very successful Broadway play. Roland West, I think, deserves more attention than he perhaps gets. He's only really known of in relation to mm. his relationship with Thelma Todd and her mysterious death. There are many things about the silent version of Talkie which are worth your time. It's a great visual. Electrifying in bits. The visuals are very interesting. So the two best things about this movie, and there are many things that make it worth watching, I think, but the two best things about it are the performances of Vincent Price and Agnes Morton. The fact that the character who turned out to be the witch from Marvel Comics, Agatha Harkness, was called Agnes and was ah. the nosy neighbour in the kind of bewitched part of WandaVision yes. when it was pastiching American sitcoms. The fact that that character was called Agnes was a pretty obvious reference to Agnes Moorhead playing Endora in Bewitched. <laughs> what can we say about the sort of tone of the film? It hasn't got 
lines we liked that occurred in the other two ones, like that yeah. one that you that you really kind of alighted upon, which was, I start by you through theosophism, socialism, rheumatism. But when it comes to spookism, I'm through. Shut up! Which the funny maid gets to say uh, in the other two versions. But now in this one, Agnes Moorhead's <coughs> companion... Companion, <coughs> <coughs> friend. It's not a funny maid, no. she's just a kind of... She's distraught maid who yes. Agnes Moorhead has to calm, soothe, you yes. might say. Yes. So, what do you think? I mean, I think what they've done is they've kind of they've they've traded the melodrama and they've traded all the knockabout humour from the two previous versions for this kind of everything's like a Tennessee Williams movie. Yeah, it's, it's lines are all these kind of gilded and kind of over elaborated. Yes. There's one particular bit where the creepy police chief Andy is seeing Vincent Price doctor out of the spooky house and there's some exchange and Vincent Price just kind of goes is it really Andy is it and you just think there's some history there we're, yes. we're being but to me I always think of this as kind of like shark fin acting is that you can see this bit on the surface it's yes. meant to imply all these layers of yes. history between the characters and their relationship and everything but the whole thing is just no. it's too insubstantial. It, it's just the the, the the talkie and the silent version, the older versions, just had a nice sort of pace and energy to it. And there was just a nice mix of comedy, genuine dread and horror, back to comedy, and a proper mystery. Whereas you're right, this does feel a bit um, stagey. Yes. People walking into rooms and sort of, pondering about things at length and you're not quite sure what's actually happening there's a tremendous amount of exposition yes. as well it's all it's all a shame I think and I, one of the things which uh, I felt watching this 58 version of the bat is can we talk about how the bat the mysterious figure who's carrying out all these murders in order to get hold of these blueprints and the blueprints then take you to a secret room in the spooky house and then the money that's been stolen from the bank is in there the bat, who's the bad guy, has become less interesting. Yeah. That in the second, the talkie version, Chester Morris is playing the bat as this character that's kind of faded from view in cinema by the 1950s, but is an important part of Batman's DNA, the man you love to hate. Yes. We talked about von Stronheim and Foolish Wives earlier on. I mean, that was how he was sold. Yes. And Lon Chaney, again, the man of a thousand faces... You went because you were terrified of him and you reviled the evil deeds that he was carrying out. But you, like Tony Soprano in The Sopranos, you were rooting for these bad guys all the way because this is the thing about bad guys. They've got more to do. Yeah. Um, and I think they missed a trick by not switching up the story somehow. And Because um, imagine if at the end of the film it is revealed that Agnes Moorhead is the bat ah, somehow. Yes. I mean, they just, I mean, she's just so fantastic in the film. Um, I also might have said she's a very attractive lady. Well, I mean, we'll, we'll go on to talk about this, but yes, I mean, Agnes Moorhead ended up playing these kind of dowager yeah. roles, but she wasn't no. that actor at all. No. And there are some moments in this movie where, particularly when she's floating around her negligee, where you just sort of think, yes. Yeah, okay, yeah, okay, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Which is an interesting thing about the film is that yeah. you've got a lead 
woman actor who yeah, is was older, older but, but not, still, yep. you know, has some pizzazz, some sizzle. I would say she has the most sizzle. She, she has the only more sizzle. More than Vincent Price. Vincent Price doesn't. He's just phoning it in a little bit. He just yeah. is collecting his check. Can you uh, shoot one of those things without shutting your eyes? Oh, Doctor, there are guns in every book I've ever written. I don't write about things I'm unfamiliar with. <laughs> Lock the door, Lizzie. Good night. Yes, ma'am. Good night, Doctor. But yes, yeah, so the the bat visually also is becoming less interesting. I mean, the, the things about the, the first two movies. You can see why Bob Kane and Bill Finger did things like just stealing the bat signal yes. wholesale from the talkie because it's just such a great image. It's a great image, yeah. You know, this sort of bat being projected on the wall yes. inside a circle. The bat in the in the silent is this amazing sort of grotesque bat mask for somebody who's basically just killing some people in the way of some blueprints to get some money. The bat in the silent film has put in an extraordinary amount of effort. Yeah, it's overkill. It really is. Uh, then in, in the second film, it's just a kind of hood. Yes. Um, it's actually the red hood, really, that the Joker has before the Joker becomes the Joker in the comics. Uh, but it's black. And it's this kind of weird gimp suit. Yes. But it's a very scary. I mean, that the sequence where she's trapped in the room with the yeah, bat and he kind of yeah. emerges from the shadows with his cackle and is terrorising her. Genuinely David Lynch. Yeah. I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you to hear. Stand still till I put my hands around your little white throat and squeeze and squeeze until you're dead. Who's in this room? Who came in this room? Get away from that safe. Help. Let me out of here. Let me out of here. Oh. Kelly. I'm amazed at that. Because it's post-haze, isn't it? Yes. It's dirty. I'm amazed that got past the censors. In this one, it's just a dude in a black fedora hat with some claws. Not really trying. <laughs> it's sort of like one of those sort of rubbish bad guys from Republic serials where they kind of do the Atom Smasher, Spy Smasher versus the Dragon King. And the Dragon King is just a dude in a, in a hood. It's a shame because to take the conversation back to Marty Scorsese for a moment something that I find very interesting about these four movies is it demonstrates how pop culture which at the moment is Marvel is DC, is these superhero properties and what we think of as the avant-garde, what we think of as a more cerebral kind of filmmaking in the roots of many of these characters which are 70, 80 years old. They're drawing on a culture from the very beginnings of cinema, particularly silent cinema, where those kind, that sort of division between what was popular and what was artistic, what was intellectual and what was for the masses, wasn't so clearly defined. Because cinema was emerging from many sort of cultural movements which were experimental, were trying out new stuff. Another influence on Batman is The Shadow. The Shadow was a detective narrator of the Detective Story Hour on the radio in the 1930s, which was used to promote magazines. But the radio show became so popular, The Shadow actually became a character himself. And he had this black cape and this slouched fedora hat, rather like the one that the bat's wearing in this movie. Now that 
character that was written by Walter Gibson in the pulps was drawing very strongly on Judex mm. and Judex was a silent serial made by Louis Fallad who'd also made La Vampire with Mutadora in as Irma Vep clearly an influence for Catwoman Judex's outfit looks identical to the shadows nowadays we think of Irma Vep and, and Judex as being avant-garde I mean certainly by the time that Georges Frangie remade Judex in 1963, it's Georges Frangier. <laughs> it's the guy who made Eyes Without a Face, who founded the, 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 the Cinematheque in France with uh, Henri Langlois. I mean, you can't think of any French cultural figure who's more locked into what Scorsese would think of as proper intelligent cinema. And he made Eyes Without a Face. Eyes Without a Face. À partir du moment où on voit Fantomas avec sa cagoule, on voit Judex avec son masque, ce ne sont pas des personnages qui appartiennent. Oui, bien sûr, ils appartiennent aux fantastiques, mais ils n'appartiennent pas à l'épouvante. Je voudrais vous annoncer une grande et heureuse nouvelle. Nous ne fêtons pas seulement ce soir le couronnement de 20 années d'efforts et de dévouement de toutes sortes, grâce auquel la banque Favreau a pu prospérer et étendre son activité à la plupart des branches de la grande industrie. He not only made Judex, he also made Shadow Man, which was that uh, French TV show that was also adapted into a film by Frangier, which is even more like um, a Republic serial. It's, have we watched it all the way through together? No. We've watched bits of it, haven't we? It looks almost like a sort of Jess Franco TV series, made in the mid-1970s. But there's a lot of stuff about the, the uh, pre Seal and that conspiracy theory, which ended up in the Dan Brown movies. But this is in the 70s when when you first started to hear about Berenger Saulnier and that, that idea that there was this kind of giant conspiracy in France that was explained all of French and world history. Uh, Franchi is drawing on that. Along with Judex and the shadow as ingredients in Batman's DNA. You've also got those gentlemen jewel thieves from that period, like Raffles and Phantomas and Arsène Lupin. You recently saw the the new Arsène Lupin TV show, didn't you, Shruti? Yeah, on Netflix. It's uh, quite engaging and also uh, uh, it's um, a black man who is um, whose father is an African immigrant to France who is inspired by the book take the literary character of Lupin and takes on the identity to you know commit some glamorous crimes it's quite good I stopped watching it because I realized I should watch the rest of it with you so. oh, okay well, that's very sweet of you yeah. I'm I'm already sold uh, that sounds absolutely terrific terrific uh, spin on it very French and very glam I love the thing uh, in the comic books it started with the original Green Lantern got the idea of being a superhero from reading a wildcat comic which suggests that in that world superheroes also exist as comic book characters Mm. but I mean you assume that whoever Superman is in Superman comics in the world that Superman's in it's not Clark Kent. No. They've kind of invented somebody else. But of course that, that happened with the shadow that um, Lamont Cranston, which was his secret identity on the radio, in the Waterby Gibson short stories, 
Cranston originally is a millionaire who's not the shadow and the shadow goes and uh, appropriates his identity and eventually Lamont Cranston just kind of I think he moves to Europe and, and gets a different identity and the shadow just always becomes Lamont Cranston that's good fun this whole idea of kind of blending of identities and, and sort of merging of identities it's it, it all makes me think of David Lynch's Lost Highway mm. which is all about that uh, and I guess that's kind of going on in this film The Bat as well because you're left wondering who the bat is. If yes. you haven't seen the stage play or the other two movie versions, you don't know who no. the bat is until the end. So you're watching it thinking, well, is Vincent Price the bat? We know who the bat is. Yeah, it's, it's a detective. <laughs> We've been talking about Agnes Moorhead and The Shadow. And of course... Who played the shadow on the radio? Agnes Moorhead's great collaborator, Orson Welles. Is it true that you were the voice of the shadow you originally? You bet I was. That's true? You bet. And what a welcome you, $85 a week that was. Can you remember the words? Uh, what is it? Um, uh, who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? The shadow knows crime does not pay. And then that laugh, you remember? Yeah. All the kids in America could do it better than I could. I just got, <laughs> I just got a few goose pimples yes. as you did there. Well, but it, was, it was great, and I didn't know how it ended, you know. Yeah. Because I, part of the deal was, I was very busy running the theater, was that I wouldn't have to rehearse. So I would just come on, they'd hand me the script, I'd go on the air, and I, they'd get me into this pit with the cobras or whatever it is, and then uh, my secretary, played by Agnes Moorhead, would break in and say, Lamont or something, you know, and I come on. It was always a big surprise to me how I had the whole thing solved. It, it added interest as far as I was concerned. <laughs> the shadow, Lamont Cranston, a man of wealth, a student of science, and a master of other people's minds, devotes his life to righting wrongs, protecting the innocent, and punishing the guilty. Cranston is known to the underworld as the shadow. Never seen, only heard... His true identity is known only to his constant friend and aide, Margot Lane. But Lamont, what's it all about? Margot, my dear, you're yours not to reason why. Yours but to make those pretty feet of yours walk fast enough to keep up with me. But I thought this trip to Egypt was to be a vacation. <laughs> Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? <laughs> the shadow knows. So there's Orson Welles as Batman's dad, the shadow, doing You're that. Being sonorous enough, Orson. <laughs> Could you make your voice go two more octaves lower? I mean, the fact that he was doing that when he was in his twenties as well. And clearly, it just cracked him up. Oh, sounds like he had a lot of fun doing it. So there he is doing this kind of absolutely over-the-top, bad guy you love to hate. So much like Chester Morris doing the bat mm. in the, the talky Roland West movie, particularly that, that outrageous bit he does to the audience at the end of the movie. Yes. Imploring the audience not to reveal, to give away the ending. And this, for me, is the kind of dichotomy of all these discussions we've been having today about Scorsese and superhero movies and where to locate the the quality the seriousness of cinema and our, our appreciation of, of films is 
You can't think of a more altruistic director. Orson Welles, Orson Welles. But in his roots, he was a Bordevillian. Yes. He was a serious stage magician. He loved all this stuff. Uh, you could hear when he was talking to Dick Cabot. He loved playing the shadow. So, Martin, you know, come, come on, on, man. We're just having a nice time. Let's bring it all down. That was lovely. I enjoyed that. And uh, Agnes Moorhead being kind of sort of amusingly relegated to expositional dialogue yes. character. <laughs> yes. Your job is to move your pretty feet. And <laughs> uh, well, we'll be talking about mm. Agnes Moorhead's pretty feet and <clears throat> her other parts in a moment. Would you like a music break, Shirty Narayan Swami? A bit of a kind of mental palate cleanser? Yes, I would. Would you like to know another top tune of 1958 uh, which has a filmic reference yes this is Derek Harriet, aka Bobby Ellis and the Crystallites aka Ike Bennett and the Crystallites aka Ike and the Crystallites with their renditioning of a platter called Ilya Kuriakin that's a song that you don't hear every day Listen to some of the theme from Ilya Kuryakin that was composed by Milton de Lug yes. in an earlier show when we talked about, because he also wrote Out of an Orange Coloured Sky, which was covered by Burt Ward, The Boy Wonder, and we listened to that. He also did the music to Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. You don't tend to, tend to think of the music when you think of that film. There are other uh, elements in the, that uh, overshadow the score. There's just so much going on on screen that you uh, don't really think about the score, and Dillog is probably thankful for that. Yeah, and he's a, an interesting guy and an interesting choice to do the theme from Ilya Kuyakin. He did get a theme, however, it wasn't this. So, what's going on? I mean, this this tune you may recognise from somewhere else. I mean, do you recognise it, Shruti, as somebody from India? So, you've not been as fully immersed in old Hollywood films being on Saturday afternoon television like I would be as somebody from the 80s no I don't well maybe this will jog your memory that is uh, Heinz Wall from the Tornadoes Joe Meeks band who you last saw in Live It Up with uh, David Hemming and uh, Steve Marriott in it's that rock and cop film that I've got on the Scarlet Map way out at Upminster because uh, uh, Kenny Ball the jazz trumpeter is in that film and was born in Hornchurch near Upminster but so this is the theme from A Summer Place in the film from 1959 it's called Molly and Johnny theme but importantly 
for the purposes of this discussion. It's composed by Max Steiner. He also did the music to Casablanca and King Kong, and I mean, you name it. I mean, he's one of the key film composers. So, even in the late 50s, Steiner was still producing tunes that became pop hits. And what I think is interesting about the Derek Harriet version of it is that they've taken a popular tune from a movie, they've released it in Jamaica with the name of a character from a popular American TV show who hasn't got his own theme at this point. I think the Milton Delug theme familiar Kirakin's on one of the Man from Uncle films. I think it's the Helicopter Spies. I have to go and look it up. But yeah, I mean, what what's going on? It's it's very strange. And what I want to just kind of briefly talk about was, as we're saying in relation to Batman's DNA partly being made up of bits of the Shadow and Judex, and but also these versions of Mary Robert Reinhardt's The Bat, you've had a similar process kind of go on with the overlap between film culture and pop culture, particularly pop music. Derek Harriet's an important figure in Jamaican popular music. He's one of the main producers of music from this kind of late 60s, early 70s period that gets called rock steady music. So Jamaican music was doing very well in Jamaica. They were selling records, but they kind of got through their phase of doing covers of R&B. And so he started releasing other material from his own studio, Crystal Studio, hence all these assumed names for, for the band but they'd stick on a a kind of film reference or a TV reference to shift a few more units I mean why not it, I mean it worked yeah best example of this of how this did work which is very interesting I feel is this distinctive part of Jamaican pop culture <laughs> Obviously, Shorty, you recognise that. Um, I last heard it in the opening credits of uh, Hitch, starring Will Smith. Had, um, did you watch I, I, that on a plane, or um, thought you'd subject yourself to cruel and unusual punishment for some reason? It, or? it was on telly in India at some point in, on a hot summer's afternoon, and there wasn't much else to do, in my defence. My condolences. Uh, but it's obviously it's from the soundtrack of The Harder They Come, one of the kind of main calling cards of Jamaican culture, hugely important cult midnight movie. And it's obviously the great Desmond Decker, but it's called... I'm guessing it's not called You Can Get It If You Really Want. That's what everyone, if you looked it up on Spotify, you look it up as that name. But its, it's actual title is in brackets 007 Shantytown which is a kind of sly reference to the kind of Jamaican rude boys that were going to parties on the beach, which inspired Decker to write this. It's kind of a sort of sly reference to, oh, here he comes, James Bond, which is not completely off the mark no. because, you know, Jamaican rude boys were known for their sharp suits and that went on to very strongly influence Scar and white working class, mainly English people's, enduring fondness for Scar because... It is about, you know, if you've only got one suit, you might as well have 
wear it every day. A nice suit. Yeah. It also just makes you realise how much harder it must have been to look up to know what a, what a song was called in the pre-internet days. Now you could just go, you could, you know, you can get it if you really want lyrics and you'll know what, what song it exactly was. And unless you've had the record and you know exactly what the, the, the song name was. And that's that's simultaneously, I think, what artists in this rock steady period of Jamaican pop music were benefiting from. is They could release a record called Indian Kiriakin and people might think it actually had something officially to do with the man from Uncle yeah. or was kind of riffing on that in the same way that Shanty Chan's riffing on James Bond. Yeah. But it's also worked for people sampling yes. Jamaican music subsequently. People from Jamaica who are listening to this can go away and make, make a cup of tea because they already know all this. But I think it's like the harder they come. It's something we don't really sort of think about or factor in in, in talking about global films and global yes. film culture. Uh, hugely important and hugely influential. I mean, just look at the number of Scar and Rocksteady uh, bits of music on bank adverts on the yeah. telly in this country. It's become the kind of default setting if you make a bank advert is uh, have a bit of bit of Jamaican Scar. Another important producer in this period is Clement Sir Coxon Dodd, who was named after the 1940 Yorkshire County Club cricketer Alec Coxon. Uh, Clement Dodd was a very good cricket player as a lad, which, again, for Indian listeners or Caribbean listeners, they won't need it explained to them that no. cricket culture is as big as film culture, really. Uh, but he set up one of the first studios that was making this kind of music and he gave the first break to Lee Scratch Perry and Prince Buster who's arguably the kind of the uh, the leading light of this one of his tracks when I was going through sort of listening to his back catalogue that I thought I'd pick out which I think is just particularly lovely is this <laughs> by Clement Dodd. Jackie Minto uh, is also somebody who's got a kind of indelible but enigmatic imprint on popular culture because of another uh, track by him which you will also recognise. sample from Lily Allen's Smile. Jackie Minto was a Canadian Jamaican pianist and band leader. 
When Jackie Minto died, Clement Dodd said of him, he was the ambassador of our music worldwide. And in a way, he's kind of carried on being an ambassador for this particularly sort of mellow, quite culturally literate yeah. form of instrumental music through, if nothing else, Lily Allen's smile. So it's this process that I'm really interested in where, as you were saying, before VHS tapes, before the internet, how did you know what song was from what film? Yeah. How did you remember what happened in a film? Because yeah. unless there was a comic book of it, as there was in some cases, I mean, when I was a very little kid, I had the DC giant-sized annual of The Wizard of Oz, which is a comic book of the whole movie, frame, frame by frame, drawn out. Yeah, especially if it's... Um uh, not to go on a big detour, but um, I was listening to someone the other day talk about the impact of the Indian film Disco Dancer and its impact in the USSR and the fact that not only was it one of the highest grossing Indian films of that year because of its um, international reach in the USSR but also in, in Kenya and Nigeria there are clips on YouTube of people from those places still singing the songs from Disco Dancer, which are in Hindi, at song competitions in those countries. And the thing I immediately thought of was, you know, in 1974, you could, you know, you could you could hum a tune, but how do you learn how to sing song lyrics in a different language? How does the how did the songs and therefore also the words and the pronunciations circulate alongside the film? It's really interesting, especially if you don't know the language. And this immediately makes me think of that uh, that wonderful track from and I'm afraid I'll now macerate your beautiful one of your beautiful mother tongues Hindi, Milgaya Hunko Sati, which yeah. I believe roughly translates as like you've got a friend. I, I've got your yeah. It, it sort of it can be uh, I've got I've now got a mate. But also, it also it can translate to "I found my life partner." And that's from the 1977 film. Again, I'll macerate the Hindi. Hum kisesi kum nahin. We're not less than anyone. That's right. Yeah. Hum kisesi kum nahin. manage that one. Uh, which, of course, is Ardi Berman. So, in the background of that song, you have people in a disco listening to Abba's "Honey, Honey," and then this track is even more overtly Abba-related. That's a direct rip from Mamma Mia. One of the interesting things about that song sequence, and I would encourage our listeners to go to YouTube and watch the whole video. Yeah, it's not just one that. song, yeah. it's a whole medley, medley yeah. uh, being carried out on a disco stage. The Lightwood Disco Dancer and this, um, and this sequence, I think one of the reasons it became so uh, popular in places outside of India is. Within the music video, there is a specific call and response 
sort of being carried out in the song. So the the song in I'm you know the song I'm a disco dancer. The song starts out with Mithun Chakrabarti, who is the lead performer, spelling out D I S C O. So every time he de- he says D, the audience says D stands for dancer. I stands for I stands for item, and spell out spells out disco. Um, and if you look at both of these song sequences, there are you can see audience members being invited into the stage and dancing with the stars. It's something that you never saw in um, Hindi film sequences before. And what's the the Western bit of that? What's the other bit of that? Is that urban sophistication, effectively? Um, I think it's it's more sort of youth culture, sort of making something new for itself. So it's the idea of taking something that's recognisably foreign, which is disco, but then putting a distinctively Indian twist on it. So again, if you look at the music videos um, for both, in, it, I, I shouldn't call them music videos. Um, musical the, the, sequences. Yeah, musical film. sequences. Yeah. Um, you, you, you can tell from the clothing, every, everyone sort of got these you know, lovely short dresses on. It sort of doesn't look like the, the stereotypical image of what people look like in Bollywood films. It's all about young people in youth culture, and that's why it became so popular, I think. And this idea of taking things from films or things from pop culture and then detourning them at the risk of using a, another elitist academic term like signification, detourning it, like the situationists did, changing it basically, but changing it to fit your culture, taking something from outside and making it a kind of inside thing. best example of this that I can think of is this distinctive track. but it's almost five minutes long. It's so good. Uh, that's Michael Vine's incredible bongo band's cover of Apache, which itself is a film reference because although it's probably best known for the version by The Shadows and Burt Whedon, which is Cliff Richard's backing band, Jerry London, who wrote it in 1954, was inspired by the Burt Lancaster film Apache. It's already a pop record riffing on a film, which is not from the film. But obviously, this was made by... Michael Biner, who was a film studio executive, he wanted to have an in-house funk band, basically, and they were originally put together for uh, that incredible two-headed transplant movie with Ray Meland in. It's got Wendy Melvoin's dad in, Mike Melvoin, the jazz pianist. One of their albums, I believe, is rumoured to have Ringo Starr playing on as well. But once DJ Cool Herc and 
the early Jamaican, very important Jamaican sound systems, uh, had big block parties in the tri-state area of New York in the late 70s. This was one of the tracks which you could mix the middle eight into the middle eight, and you basically got two LPs yeah. and play them one into each other, and you could extend it indefinitely. And from that, we get all of hip hop. Yes. <laughs> I mean, not not just a musical genre, but really kind of arguably a form of music itself, which is based on sampling and patchworks, yeah. reappropriation of not only tunes and motifs, but also whole chunks of culture. Roll credits for our podcast. It's about music. It's about films. It's about music for films. It does exactly what it says on the tin. Another thing which uh, came into my mind when I was doing research for this is that piece of music that appeared in WandaVision when it turned out that the nosy neighbour Agnes, clearly based on Agnes Moorhead uh, from Bewitched, was actually the witch from the comics Agatha Harkness. We then got the Agatha Harkness theme tune. Effectively, it was Agatha in the world. Well, that is clearly drawing on the theme music from the Monsters and the Adams Family, yeah. which must have taken their inspiration from this. Come on to my house and my house, I'm gonna give you apple, plum, and I forgot to do Come on to my house, my house, come on. Come on to my house, my house, come on. Come on to my house and my house, I'm gonna give you figs and dates and grapes and cakes. Come on to my house, my house, come on. Come on to my house, my house, come on. Come on to my house and my house, I'm gonna give you. Uh, I wonder what she could possibly be alluding to. That's Rosemary Clooney, Come On Over My House, a hit for Rosemary Clooney in 1951, written by Ross Bagasarian, probably best known for Albert and the Chipmunks, and he co-wrote it with his cousin, the Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist William Sarayan, and they wrote it in the 30s during a long road trip through New Mexico, and it's based on Armenian folk music, hence it's kind of jaunty, wide-along kind of road trip type of quality uh, the harpsichord player in it is Stan Freeman it's produced by Mitch Miller who's a very important record producer from this period he's probably best known for uh, The Yellow Rose of Texas and also When Johnny Comes Marching Home but it was his idea to put this harpsichord in and it's like the kind of monster kid horror culture that's yes. coming in the late 50s it's a bit cheeky well, it's saucy what we now think of as yeah it's that kind of wink to camera yeah. type of horror film uh, vibe yeah. to it very interesting isn't it yeah. how these things kind of keep circling and yes. coming back and something from the movies will influence something in the hit parade and then it will feed back into itself come on to my house I thought we'd finish with we've played this before but I think it, it illustrates the point we're making which is that the Batman theme was even covered by Sun Ra's Orchestra, <laughs> actually Sun Ra's Blues Project, doing the Batman theme.
was all very pleasant. Shall we dip in again to this 1958-59 Vincent Price Agnes Moorhead version and also look at a comparable scene from a TV version starring Jason Robards and Helen Hayes? Let's do it. And now, the premiere performance of the Dow Hour of Great Mysteries, produced by Robert Sodic Associates. The Bat by Mary Roberts Reinhardt and Avery Hopwood. Starring Helen Hayes, Jason Robards Jr., and Joseph N. Welch as your host. Who can be calm when the window rattles or a floor creaks and the wind is screaming around the house, especially if you're going to see a mystery story? Mary Roberts Reinhardt wrote some of the American classics in this field, and we are going to begin this series of great mysteries with her play, The Bat. As you will see, The Bat is a very busy fellow. Talented, too. Theft, arson, murder, all in a night's work. He is, in short, one of the master criminals of the 1920s. The first time The Bat was produced, the playwrights withheld the last three pages of the script, so that none of the actors knew which one of them would turn out to be the bat. Just before the play opened, the actors were given the last three pages. And I am told that the actor, or actress, who turned out to be the bat was furious. Who wants to be a villain? So the Dow Mystery Hour only ran for six episodes on American television in 1960 because the narrator, Joseph Nye Welch, who you heard yes. in that sequence, very sadly died. That is quite sad, but I suppose that Dow was probably grateful that they didn't have a run of Dow Chemicals Presents Cinema Hour right after updates from the Vietnam War. No. That, that would have been... A bit awkward. Yeah, a bit awkward. Yeah, but this, this was sort of tail end of the Korean yeah. War. They hadn't got into Vietnam yet in 1960. Yeah, so. But it's interesting that you make that connection because the cast of this hour-long TV version, which is much closer to what it would have been like on the stage. I think that's the reason to watch this version. But for something which is quite stagey and theatrical, it's got a very good cast. Helen Hayes, who we've talked about before in The Snoop Sisters. I remembered it as being terrible. It's worse than that. The picture doesn't quite hold up. If anybody has to pay to see it, that's a hold-up. Also in this, you've got... Margaret Hamilton, who you last saw in the 1939 MGM Wizard of Oz. I mean, she's one of the most readily identifiable actors in American cinema. But because she's so strongly identified with the witch role, people forget she had a very long career. And then you've also got Jason Robards Jr., who is in all sorts of things. Uh, I particularly like him in the Nicholas Meyer-directed Bleak Nuclear Holocaust teleseries, The Day After which ran in the 1980s. It was, it was one of those things on television, like Threads, which traumatised kids like me in the 80s. But he's also recognisable from loads of voiceover work. He's in so many PBS documentaries. He's one of the voices reading letters in the Ken Burns PBS Civil War mm. series. Uh, my favourite voiceover work he did... Have we watched this, Shruti? Uh, it's a documentary about the 1938... World's Fair in Flushing, New York. No. It's terrific. It's, I think, one of the best kind of ethno-historical films about America using lots of archive footage. It's what they're gently paying homage to in 
Captain America the First Avenger you know they go to the World's Fair and it's very interesting to see him in this because it's when he's he's playing the the inspector the investigator role in this and he's good looking he's a a handsome possibly romantic lead but mm, there's something of the nice about Jason Robards Jr. in this we won't say any more than that but there's a bit more to this Jason Robards Jr. than we'd imagined should we dip in let's do it now this one unlike the Vincent Price version we've got the scene on the stairs with the shot there's the shot falls down the stairs theatrically dies he thinks it's all over it is now Um, it's nice of the back to pose for a second with its arms outstretched to show off his costume I mean if you've put so much work into creating a custom costume for your nighttime escapades yeah, no, one, no one appreciates it everyone just focuses on the murder and the shooting and I was sort of goes oh oh that's nice it was a hand sewn yeah he's really put his back into this hand sewn bat costume and I think Another thing you can say about the Dan Mistriad version of the Bat Whispers is the Bat himself has has raised his game relative yes. to the 1958-59 Vincent Price version. He has at least made a nice suit, like the extraordinarily elaborate mask which the Bat in the silent version, the original Roland West version, has got. So he has tried. But there's none of the visual flourish of the Roland West version. You haven't got the... The, the letters no you know that would be the subtitle hanging in the air as they do in the first one amazing visual flourish so now they're all standing around talking about what just happened and there's, there's a lot of people walking in and walking out outdoors expositing but that's yeah. theatre for you yeah this is it's very murder mystery talk also for something that's in the haunted house genre it does pull its punches a bit doesn't it yeah is it scary I do like um, Helen Hayes' character I do appreciate that about all the films and I guess the original um, screenplay as well that she's not like a scaredy cat Um, and it's also not an insignificant female character you don't actually see a lot of good roles for older women well, that's one of the good things about the about this franchise. I don't know if that's the right word. But. Well, it's certainly a sequence. Yeah, it's a yeah. cycle of, of it yeah. was very successful. I mean, it, you yeah. know, there's the famous poster of Legowski's Dracula as a theatre play because he played Dracula on stage before he was in the movie. Um, uh, there's the famous poster of the Legowski theatre play where one of the strap lines is better than the bat. Yeah, well... In the 1920s and 30s, the bat whispers was a thing. It was a thing like the mouse trap or, or Wicked. That it was a, re- a recognisable Broadway show that you'd go to in the evening after after you know when you did your dinner in the theatre thing. It'd be like, let's get dinner and hey, what what show should we catch, honey? Well, we haven't seen the bat. Yeah, it's it's a film titled The Bat, but the the lead character in all of the films is the the character of the elderly dowager lady and every every actress brings something different 
to the role, which is quite nice. And that's an interesting thing about these movies that they nowadays only get talked about as that they're a kind of little bit of a of connective tissue. They're a little kind of uh, moat in the eye of Bob Kane in creating Batman, and that is true. But if this is part of Batman's DNA, it's from a novel and a play written by a woman, Mary Roberts Reinhardt, and it has got very strong female roles, which is interesting. Not something you can say about Batman in the comics for most of his history. No. It's only really in the 70s that they brought in Talia al Ghul and belatedly Batwoman's come along. Um, and Batgirl's an interesting character, but they've never really been able to give her that much to do. One of the Bruce Tim animated films, um, which is kind of based on some of the comic books, didn't go down very well with fans because it starts with Batgirl having sex with Bruce Wayne when he's in his Batman costume on a roof. And people just kind of went, mm. yeah, but they're not okay. like an, they're not an item. She's his student. That's mm. icky. Mm. And it is a bit icky, that film. It's, it's quite good. It's got Mark Hamill doing his Joker voice, but it is a bit icky. That, that's basically Hollywood's unofficial tagline. Ooh. Often quite good, but it's kind of icky. You want to watch it, but you don't want to share a towel with it. No. <laughs> Shall we skip ahead to the end? Yes. So, it, it, as we say, it does... It trots along at a kind of quite a quite a hearty pace so this is the bit where they're all now locked in a room in the attic where there's a secret safe which has got the blueprints that show you where the money's hidden and they found the money it was poorly hidden in a suitcase it was stuffed into a suitcase in a secret room all along so we're not going to do the big reveal of who the bat is. No. As uh, Welch says at the start of the show, which we, we played, when they did it on stage, it could have been the lead female character. It could have been the comedy Japanese butler who comes back for this TV version. Uh, actually, any of the, of the cast could have been the bat, but... We won't reveal who the bat is this yeah. time. Come on, don't be lazy. It's less than an hour. Watch it yourself. So they've pulled off his um, surprisingly elaborate uh, cowl. I mean, as, as Joseph Nywelch was saying, that he's a master criminal. But most of his mastery, it has to be said, is in that beautifully hand-stitched sort of um, ribbing in his bat wings. Do you think his bat wings have any kind of practical function for robbing or murder? Uh, it's, it's a garbage bag. If you need an emergency garbage bag. That's true. The bat's been caught. His plot's been thwarted once again. It's very satisfactory, I think, isn't it? Yeah. It, does, it doesn't muck around. However... Speaking of mucking around... So we've already looked at some of the clips from the 58 Vincent Price one. Uh, there's a colourised version that you can watch if you want to. Should we go to the... Um, I want to say the cottaging sequence, but it's not um, a cottage, it's cabin. It's a cottage core sequence. Cottage core sequence. 
So we're looking at the colorized version now. They're in their, their cabin. Could you explain cottagecore to us? Because they're both wearing plaid shirts. I mean, they're now at the stage in their <clears throat> friendship where they're dressing alike. But so, what, can you explain the concept of cottagecore to mm. us and why this nineteen fifty eight a bit too old, <laughs> not the right demographic? But I think it sort of refers to um, uh, it's more it's more of an aesthetic. Um, uh, I'm sure fueled in large part by Instagram, um, which sort of uh, is all about life revolving around a sort of. Um, idyllic pastoral rural chores sort of way of life so it's all about plaid shirts and and you have a small farm and you're all about that life but it's all very aesthetically pleasing hand sewn lilac eye pillows yeah yeah, yeah vincent price just reached into a drawer looking for a cigarette and there was a leaflet about needlepoint now so what i wonder about this sequence and We'll look in a moment at uh, Agus Moorhead and her <clears throat> companion. Are we looking back at this film from the late 1950s and seeing a pretty obvious queer subtext with an actor who it's now known was, it must be said, extravagantly bisexual? Are we seeing a queer subtext to this scene and to this film where there isn't one necessarily, it's just a bit of a duff, boring, long film and so saying, oh, look at them, they're homosexuals. It just makes it more interesting when they're just some guys wearing some shirts. Yeah, I mean, it's probably true that that's sort of how art works, doesn't it? Every new generation of people see something different in it because there's another layer of uh, history added to it. So each generation just has more history to look The thick text gets thicker, you sort of see more onion skin layers of meaning. Um, I have to say, it's really distracting that the because the, the colorization has obviously been done p- by, by a machine um, and their their skin tones they, they, they look great they look like uh, reanimated embalmed corpses and it's a bit distracting and o- often their hands aren't the same color as their yeah. faces so they kind of look like reanimated corpses oh and Ooh. there's another shot oh yeah he shot his mate now But also in a culture where gay men, lesbians, bi people can yeah. be out, we're bound to see little bits of evidence of, yeah. well, is this an attempt at kind of signalling that maybe the characters are a little bit more intimate than the dramaturg is letting on? You're bound to find all these tiny little bits of evidence of what Susan Sontag's talking about in her notes on camp because they had to if you'll excuse the term, spread it around. They had to leave all these little kind yeah. of Easter eggs of, of queerness all over the place because you couldn't... I mean, sometimes they did. I mean, sometimes you've got films like Dance Girl, Dance, yeah, where the lesbian subtext of that film is not really subtext, no, it's just text. Yeah. But films like that are pretty few and far between in Hollywood. Also, it's just the medium of cinema, isn't it? we follow characters in cinema but we don't see every moment of their waking life we don't some films where we get to hear a certain person's singular perspective through a voiceover or or, um, 
something like that. But often cinema is a medium where you, the, the audience has to imagine a few things. You the have to make assumptions about someone's intentions and mo- character motivations. So. What their emotional life is like otherwise. Yeah. yeah, that's a really good point. Let's skip ahead to uh, when Agnes Moorhead and her no longer funny maid but her companion are beset by the bat the bat's got into the house so the funny maid's sleeping on the sofa lover's tiff perhaps mm. and uh, Agnes Moorhead's got out of her bed in her skimpy surprisingly skimpy negligee. it is surprisingly boobsy isn't it and she's it's having to now she's struggling to get the straps back on her shoulders I mean, it's not an, it's not overtly sexy it's it, the, the the suggestion the hint of sexism what makes it interesting um, it may not be overtly sexy to you as an ostensibly heterosexual hey. woman but hey. as to me as an ostensibly heterosexual man she's really struggling with those straps so this is interesting because it's it's the way in which when you and we can we can talk to our exciting guest about this as well when you queer a text and I think that needlepoint leaflet in that drawer mm, I think that actually is a deliberate in joke about well why is it they're living in a cabin together I think that is a deliberate signal when you queer a text you also um, queer heterosexuality so one of the things about the kind of sexual subtext of this film is putting Agnes Moorhead who is a very attractive woman but she's an, an older woman at this point in her career putting her in uh, costumes which are extremely revealing in 1958 it's interesting I wonder how many films are doing this with attractive women ac- ac- uh, actors in their 50s of putting them in boobsy negligees. No, it's probably a, a, it's a, also it, the fact that it's a scene with another woman where they're both in the same room but they're older so your first impression is an ooh, there's something going on here. So that context then gives filmmakers a way of almost introducing sexiness by stealth because you go on the perversions in your mind yeah she's just an older woman and she, you know the ooh, ooh. now so speaking of um sexy by stealth we've got a film called the bat which is featured various rubber bats being flung around but now we've got an actual, an bat, actual real bat an actual science so shruti Swami, as a former lab technician what do you make of vincent price's sciencing in this is he sciencing the shit out of the bat he's got a bat He's got the bat to basically flob on a, mic- a microscope slide. He's got some spit sample off its fangs. And he's now on the phone. He's got his gloves on. He's looking under the microscope. Is this realistic? The bat's realistic. Mm. Uh, but uh, he basically just made the, the uh, you know, got a bit of the bat's sputum on the slide and then just shoves it under a microscope. I'm sorry, Vincent, that wouldn't work. You have to use stains. You have to stain cells. That's how you that you can pick things up under a microscope. If you looked at that slide under a microscope without applying any staining to it, 
it, it, it basically just uh, looking at a water droplet you just see sort of swirling patterns so also that took him about 10 seconds he lo looked at the, the the slide for 10 seconds and he's just found something yeah no so it sounds to me as though what you're saying is that science in the movies is not particularly realistic yeah, so it's not just like shocking. you you get the the, the bit of evidence you get the MacGuffin yeah you and do then a you thing to a thing and hack, then you look, hack into the mainframe you look you look down the barrel and go oh I've hacked the cell remarkable the cells are replicating at a massive exponential rate does that not really happen no is it much more like a very painstaking methodical process of carefully collecting evidence and then assembling it in some kind of matrix of data I mean painstaking is probably um making it sound more um, adventurous than yeah. it is but yeah it is often just onerous and quite boring and your eyes hurt oh alright uh, tell her I'll be right over there the two of us no boogeyman is greater than the two of us the people scream about the team of Carl and Price although we're as nice as can be my buddy and me, there's just the two of us, and we'll be always traveling on. The two of us. Oh. Well, Shirty, I've thoroughly enjoyed looking at these four versions of the Bat Whispers with you. Thanks for joining me in this exploration into some of the DNA of Batman and Haunted House films. It's been a lot of fun. It has been a lot of fun, hasn't it? And next time, we're going to have some more fun. What I thought might be a fun thing to explore, this might be something you've thought about yourself, Shruti. I frankly doubt it, though. What is a Wonder Wall? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Not knowingly. In any kind of context? Not unless you count uh, drunken college students trying to... Uh, lip sync to the lyrics of the Oasis song but that's a memory best left unvisited that sounds very traumatic but they're most memories to do with Oasis and indeed all creation records artists tends to be associated with trauma well we won't be revisiting that fortunately no. but we will be looking at Joe Massett's two films one his electric western with the Firesign Theatre in and Don Johnson Zachariah and then also his 1968 British psychedelic film Wonderwall which the film itself is it's a it's a fun film but it's not an amazing film no the soundtrack album wow can you just set that up for us it's soundtrack by George Harrison ooh out of the Beatles out of the Beatles and his foray into Indian classical music and is that good or bad or oh it's it's good and very interesting and you will have to listen to the next episode to find out I did not expect that answer I thought Judge Harrison doing a soundtrack album with Indian musicians would not necessarily be good but you quite liked it when we listened I did, to it yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that well thank you again Shirty for joining me well, it was a huge exertion moving from one room in our house to another. Yeah, by the time you record the next Music for Films box set, we may have actually managed to venture 
as far south as Edinburgh. Imagine that. Our podcast is More Music for Films, and you can find it on thebeekeepers.com or your podcasting application of choice. The curtains open to reveal a painted backdrop of the interior of a hotel bedroom. At the base of the spotlight beam, on the floor of the stage, a sloth is licking a high-heeled shoe. 